Coming up on the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. The love story. I love the story. Somebody says there's this young lady somebody (laughs) introduced you to for a business arrangement. She is also an ordained minister. So she can legally marry people, which comes into play later. People are like, wasn't love at first sight. People want that. They do want that. So I show up and I come straight from the vineyards. You were so dirty. I was really dirty. And Rob left a bottle of his wine with me. The wine. You have to call it the seduction wine. And now, the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. The cell phones have been silenced. The wine has been poured. Will you join us? And just like that, the podcast begins. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. My name is Mike Stone, the eponymous Tall Mike in question. Welcome to my show, spanning the globe, listeners on three continents, in nine countries, 28 of these United States, including such big towns as Nevada, Missouri, Marlboro, New Jersey, Huff, Ohio, Meridian, Idaho, Centennial, Colorado, and oh, my hometown of Bremerton, Washington. It would seem they've found the podcast and are catching up. Nice work, B-Town. And thank you for finding us. I'll do my best to keep the show amusing at the very least. And today we're doing something really different. We are on location at a different winery in Sonoma. Typically, we record at Nicholson Ranch in the fabulous Vintner's Room. But due to some scheduling issues, I decided to take my laptop and microphones on a little trip to another part of Sonoma to another winery. I'm speaking to you from Schurmeister Winery in Sonoma which is just a few clicks to the northwest of Nicholson Ranch in Glen Ellen. Everything I need to record the podcast actually fits into my computer bag, so it's uh, super mobile, which is fun. My guests are Laura and Rob Schurmeister. They own and operate a small winery named after themselves. Hey, you two. Hey, Mike. How's it going? It's great. How are you? I'm doing well. (laughs) How are you, Rob? It's going great, Mike. This is cool. You guys have a great tasting room it's not only a great space like it's beautiful it's cozy it's inviting and warm but i think it's also a really good place to record a podcast it is we are sitting here actually in what was and will become again our private winemaker room oh so it's a little tiny space in Glen Ellen, which coincidentally used to be a recording studio so a lot what? of yep some of the original members of metallica have recorded here no way. And probably Norton Buffalo, Janice Joplin is rumored, but that's probably not true. So yes, the acoustics are great for something like this. Definitely Norton Buffalo. Definitely Norton, here for yeah. sure. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. How long have you guys been in the space? So we opened here in uh, December of 2018. My husband and I had full-time jobs, 401ks, health insurance, all that good stuff. And um, at one point we had enough wine to kind of quit that and YOLO, as they say. (laughs) You only live once. So uh, we decided we had built up enough wine and we started looking for tasting room space. And uh, we looked in downtown places. We looked in Sonoma, Petaluma, Napa. I think we even looked up in Healdsburg. And kind of things were falling through a little bit. And one day we were Sort of just seeing what was left on the market, and we both love Glen Ellen. Rob has a little history here, and we walked into the space. It's tucked in the back of Jack London Village, which is actually Glen Ellen's oldest building, and it's this really old kind of barn building with dark, dark wood and a lot of age and kind of history to it. When you first walked into it, what was it? It was a torn apart mess. 
It had no drywall. It smelled so bad. It smelled like musty water damage. And it had pretty much become a catch-all for a lot of the other construction going on in the building. And we walked in, and the natural light was really nice. Maybe that's because there was a hole in the roof where it would rain down into the space. Hey, that'll help natural light every time. (laughs) But yeah, we just walked in, and we looked around, and we loved the shape. The whole room has kind of an L shape to it, and it steps up, and we have this nice little um, private tasting area where we're sitting right now. And the energy was undeniable. We had no idea how people would find us back here because it's quite hidden. Um, and Glen Ellen is a little off the beaten path as well. But we could just feel the creativity in here um, before knowing that it was a recording studio. And we signed the lease. And I think a year and a half later, we moved in and started sharing our wines with people. That's cool. So how long has Schurmeister Winery been a winery, Rob? I started making wine for other people first in 2006 and then I started my own winery in 2012 with just 100 cases. It's been what 8 9 harvests now, so it's been been quite a while, but you know, we started with 100 cases and I just organically grew to 700 cases and don't have any, you know, investors or anything. It was just money that I saved. I lived in a Craigslist house, like a boarding house down in Napa that was like $400 a month, but I lived with five or six other guys. And I drove a Ford Taurus to like 230,000 miles, saving all of my money just so I could do that 100 cases. And I had no idea how to sell it until sure. eventually. Yeah, That's one of those things it. in the wine business. People don't realize it. Oh, I'd love to make wine, have my own wine label. And you realize that you're going to make way more wine than you'll ever be able to drink. And your friends will ever be able to help you drink. So at some point, you got to sell it. We yeah. always tell people not to start their own winery. And just, <laughs> uh, it's great if you have a great team and you know you have ways to share it with people, make it accessible to buy. We typically tend to steer people away when they start dreaming like that. And <laughs> and I always tell people or say like Laura, so my wife, she does art. In fact, she has a bunch of art here in the tasting room. When she makes her art, it doesn't cost ten plus thousand or thirty thousand dollars to make whereas when i do my wine which i consider my art it costs a lot of money so you have to have someone buy it else i'm unable to continue to just keep making it which is what i want to do i want to make wine for the rest of my life you can't just go to the art supply store and buy a few things i can't and it takes three years so you know it's one of those things where i started making it and then i'm like the next stage was well i need to find out how to to sell the wine and a couple of years rolled down and I was still making wine, hadn't sold a single bottle yet. I was like, well, I need to have a website so I can start selling the wine Mm -hmm. that I'm making so I can keep making it. And so that's when I called a friend and she said, there's this young girl in here from Charlotte. And that's when I met a certain person to design my website who is sitting across from me uh, holding the other microphone. And I don't mean Mike. This is Laura. (laughs) Well, I mean... I can bat my eyelashes. <laughs> this is actually a clean shirt that I'm wearing just for you guys. I love it. Mine is a day old. <laughs> so that's, I mean, since you're leading us into this, it's in my notes. The love story. It's on your website. There's a great story on the Schurmeister website. And that's it. Just Schurmeister.com, right? I'll spell but- it for you. It's <laughs> S-C-H-E-R-M, as in Mary, E-I-S-T. E-R. And Laura didn't want to take the name when I finally uh, asked her to marry me, but she did because we already had the business. 
<laughs> I so, want it to be associated with the winery. I'm like, okay, you're a winemaker. I'll take your lesson. All right, so let's so let's pick it up. I want to do the right. I want to do right by you guys and your story because I read the story on the website. You just sort of touch on it, the finer details, but I love the story. So Rob is a young winemaker. He's setting aside all of his pennies. Who were you working for as a winemaker at that time? I was working at Laird, and I had just finished my job with Mark Bear as assistant winemaker. So a couple of big name wineries here. So you've made this wine now. And it's time to get a website. Now it's 2014. Okay. So, so you're going to strike out on your own. You're going to start your own little label on the side. You're still going to have your day job. Yeah. It was all going to be just the side because I, I never <laughs> had anything in my like eyes that I would ever be going, we could just do this. It was five-year plan, be on the side, still working for other people. Humble origins. Somebody says there's this young lady. You you're, you are a designer. I am, Yes. To this day. To this day. You never stop being a designer. No, you don't. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, somebody, Unfortunately. Somebody introduced you to for a business arrangement. And coincidentally, the woman who was the, she was the production manager at Laird Estate at the time. So she was kind of running the show over there with production. And she is also, which we didn't know at the time, an ordained minister. So she can legally marry people. Which comes into play later. Okay. So Rob, don't telegraph it. Oh no. <laughs> but yeah, I I was just supposed to be in Napa for a couple months. I just wanted to learn how to make wine, taking a break from the design world on the East Coast. You were in North Carolina. I was. But you're from California. I am. I was born in Long Beach. Okay. Currently. I have one more LBC tattoo removal session left. I was just going to say 562. I lived there for a short time. I It has changed a lot. There are a lot of condos there now. But I was like the sublime Tupac LBC. That's what I had in mind when I got my tattoo. So paying homage to my homeland. I was born in California and I'm an airline family. So at eight years old, we moved to the East Coast. I mean, I pretty much grew up in North Carolina. Okay. I consider myself more a North Carolinian than a Californian. My whole family was out here. So I traveled all the time back to visit and it was just a carrot being dangled in front of my face. So finally, I don't know, I turned 30 and I was ready for a life change and I was really burned out on design. And I've always been passionate about wine and really started kind of smelling and really thinking about tasting maybe in my mid to late 20s. And I just said, you know what? I know someone out in Napa. I'll just call him to see if I can come work a harvest. And so I did. I came out in 2013. So you were already a budding wine geek. I was, yeah. And designer. Yes. You come out here. Now, Rob, pick up the story when your friend says there's this designing lady. I had looked at a lot of designers and I wasn't super excited about the stuff that they had because it was not as modern as I wanted. So then I looked on her website and I looked at her portfolio and I really liked her style. And then called her up and we arranged and we met at Starbucks down in the town of Napa, downtown Napa. And so we met there and I guess we met and we talked for like 30 minutes and she showed me her portfolio and we talked about some ideas and I did not think much of it at all. I am going to interrupt, even though I said I wouldn't interrupt. It was so formal. So formal. It's a business meeting. Yeah. People are like, was it love at first sight? No. <laughs> so yeah. People they, want that. They do yeah. want that, but it's okay yeah. if it's not there. So it's babe, be okay. it was a business meeting because I had very little bit of money and 
here she's quoting me her rate and I'm like, what are you talking about? And then at the same time, I want to be super professional because let's face it, everyone in the wine industry, I was 31 at the time. No one took me seriously because I'm really young. Okay. As soon as I walked in the door. Maybe they did, but I didn't get the feeling that they okay. did. Okay. Right? There's also a thing when you are a man in the wine industry meeting a female person in a meeting, you don't want to come across as a creeper. Thank you, Mike, for acknowledging that. <laughs> I appreciate you. But you have to be you have to be mindful of that. Well, also when you're a woman walking into a room in the wine industry mm-hmm. and there's a man in the room, mm-hmm. you have to be mindful that he's probably already taken. Just <laughs> just saying. I feel like our situation, how we met and everything, how it happened is rare. So can I continue you with the may story? Continue. continue the story. Okay. Yes. We went our separate ways and I continue to think about things. So Laura is a person that when she comes up with something she wants to do, she gets it done right away. I'm the type of person that I sleep on it at least three, four days for a big decision. So like this was a big decision for me and it was a lot of money for me at the time. And so I'm like, well, I got to sleep on it. So seven days later, I get a call from her. Was it a call or an email? I emailed you. And it was two weeks. And saying, hey, are we going to do this thing or not? So she was doing the follow-up. And so I was like, yeah, let's do it. And she said, okay, come by my studio and drop off the deposit, which is 50%. And we do a, what do you call that? A creative meeting. Yeah, creative. Just like a discovery. Yeah, discovery meeting where we talk about all the stuff. So I show up and I come straight from the vineyards. I'm in a pink t-shirt. Coral. Coral. With ripped holes in it. And ripped jeans. You were so dirty. I was really dirty. What but time I of year was, was it? What, what part of the uh, cycle was it? This was, this was Mar- March. March. So I was out so. in the vineyards look, looking at bud break. Bud break, yeah. Yeah. Kind of like what has just been happening. Just here. exactly just been happening. And so, but I was excited because it's like the start of the new year. So I yes. was in a good mood. Okay. And, <laughs> awesome. Rare. Uh, yeah. I was in a good mood. Uh-oh. And so she, we talked, we were supposed to be, I think, 30, 45 minutes for this meeting. And we talked there for maybe like six hours or something like that. By the time Rob left the studio, he walked out the door and it was dark out. I think our meeting was maybe for two o'clock, but we did, we talked for about six hours. You know, I start asking him questions. First of all, I love knowing who people are, no matter who you are. And so part of my job as a designer is, yes, I'm building your website for you, but I really want it to be indicative of who you are as a soul. And so I do kind of ask personal questions like, what did you like to do growing up? What do you do for hobbies? What do you do just on your off day when you have no plans? And we just started talking about travel, our parents, and college, and and this was only the second time we had ever met. It's starting to sound like your first official meeting to discuss designs verged on being a first date. It did feel like a first date. And the woman who I was working with, she was actually in the studio with us. Okay. And um, she She's was at her it. desk. She's feeling it. She's feeling it. She actually, <laughs> she actually got up to leave because probably she it was a bit- She went to go bit, eat dinner. Yeah, it was to get dinner, but she probably felt a little <laughs> awkward about how we were. <laughs> I'm sure she felt awkward. We were definitely- deep into conversation with each other and it felt so natural and rob believe it or not is actually not a huge talker and he just really opened up about a lot of things and i found him to be incredibly thoughtful and interesting but he had this kind of quiet demeanor to me which i really loved because that's the opposite of who i am so 
it got dark and we closed things out and Rob left a bottle of his wine with me, which is a very huge part of why I'm sitting here today mm-hmm. still. The wine. The wine. He, we, <laughs> we later called it... Um, when we were selling this wine in our tasting room, it was Rob's first vintage, a 2012 Pinot from the Carneros Appalachian. I jokingly told people that it was the wine that he seduced me with. And so then guests started saying, you have to call it the seduction wine. So um, it's just really fun to have that story in my life. In my defense, I did not leave it there to seduce her. That was not the plan. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah, the, the plan was... So that it, you know, she would see and <laughs> take me seriously as a winemaker. Well, and she's trying to get a sense of you yeah. and a big part of who you are at that exactly. time. Exactly, and that wine. would show the, the wine in that's, the bottle. That's the that's the story. You know, that was it. You know, I left it. It was not in, with the intention of seducing her, but okay. at all. Did so eventually. There were dates. There was a relationship. A lot of gnocchi with pesto sauce because that was all I knew how to cook. So I cook him the same thing every time he'd come over to hang out. But yeah, we were actually friends throughout the whole design process. You make pesto from scratch? I do make pesto from scratch. <laughs> I, okay. That's the okay. only thing I can make that until, was yeah, yeah. Until recently, we just got a, a new kitchen, so she's cooking there. Until recently, mm-hmm. in the six years that I've known her, I think I could count the times that she cooked for me on both hands. And like half of those were pesto. Uh, her homemade pesto, because that's what she's really good at. The first time I came over and she cooked me this pasta, and I was like, okay, this is a plus, a plus sign for her. And then by the third time that she cooked that for me, I'm like, okay, this is no longer a positive. <laughs> See, <laughs> that's I, I would have been that thinking. She but it's so delicious. You can't, I mean, it's really hard to mess it up. It sounds wonderful, but I would have been thinking at that point, maybe I need to get this girl a cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny, I actually love cookbooks, and I get them, and I bring them home, and I'm like, I'm going to make this tonight. And then I flip through, and I decide halfway through that they're all too complicated, and I just make gnocchi with pesto sauce. She finds the most complicated recipe all the time. And so, I use all the dishes in the house. I, I mean, think we're getting on a little We're getting off on a tangent, yes. <laughs> this is Tangent City. No, but so. this is, see, my podcast is a, it's a wine podcast, but it's not a podcast about wine. It's right. a podcast with wine people who like to talk about other things. And, th- and, that, and that is where the entertainment comes from. I'm glad we're entertaining you. I hope yeah. we're entertaining your listeners, too. <laughs> Let's do a little taste yeah. of what we have in the glasses. But before we do that, Laura, she admitted to me that she's not listened to the podcast, so she doesn't know what I'm about to put on the table. <laughs> These are the official Tall Mike Wine podcast coasters. I love it. <laughs> this that- is awesome. That uh, a friend of mine at Nicholson Ranch uh, helped me design, or actually she designed them. I wanted a card for the podcast, like a postcard to hand people. It evolved into a coaster. These are your official coasters now. Thank you so much. Did you want the card or did you just want your face on a coaster? Well, my face is the podcast art, which came about (laughs) at the end of the process of developing the podcast. Like you have to have your little piece of art to put... On everybody's podcast player, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify, your logo comes up. That was the first thing I thought of when I thought of having a logo for my podcast. It's a picture somebody took of me years ago with that glass up in my face. It slowly evolved into more of a cartoon image, which I think works. Do you like it as a designer? I love it because the base of my wine glass is clear. So what I can see when I'm looking at my wine glass as opposed to a ceramic mug 
I can look down at my wine glass and always see your face. There I am. So it's actually perfect. I love the idea of a wine coaster. There I am. Oh, I love it. And I also like how bold the letters stand out on the black background. Thank you so much. I'm glad you like it. Ooh, and the wine in there is black too, which makes it kind of inky and dramatic looking. The goatee looks a little bit like the hair's a little bit blacker. Yeah. This is a picture from a few years ago. Before, before all the hair on my goatee pretty much just turned white. So it's not necessarily truthful as far as its representation of myself. That's why it's a caricature. It's a caricature. It's a caricature. That's right. I think it's great. It's me on my best day. Oh, I actually am giving these coasters away to anybody who emails me on the podcast. I'll just give a plug for that. Tall Mike Wine is the name of the podcast. Tall Mike Wine is my email address at Gmail. Send me an email. I'll send you a few coasters. This offer is limited. You like that? I love it. It's a disclaimer. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. You have to disclaim everything in this world. <laughs> we have Viognier in our glasses. Schurmeister Viognier from what vintage? I don't have any Viognier in my glass anymore. No, I drank oh. it all. Okay. But it is 20. You have been sipping. Yeah, it is. And it has been about 20 minutes. So. so something I've learned about being married is that you actually have to share with people. So I'm going to share my Viognier with you. Thanks, Let's talk babe. about I the Viognier. You. It's one of my favorite white wines, and I'm always looking for a great Viognier. I can't afford the really expensive ones from France. The Condrus. The Condrus that I, just surreal in their delicacy, but ferocity at the same time. A good Condrus will change your life. Totally. We actually had a lovely Frenchman come in, and he said that our Viognier reminded him of a Condrus. Wow. And Rob just about melted all over the floor. That was such a wonderful compliment. Coming from a Frenchman, too. Coming from a Frenchman, yes, they do have very high standards. Oh, see French. Yeah. <laughs> Give me the wine. He was very, it was very, uh, very interesting type of person. He wore that French type of hat, not the beret, but kind of like the bolo hat. But he was a Frenchman wearing a hat anyway. But he was really nice, very quiet. He didn't say a word through his whole tasting. And at the end, to receive that kind of compliment, we were in our first year of having our tasting room open. And that first year, when you quit everything to start a dream, Every single person's opinion is everything to you. Yeah. And you take everything super seriously. And just to hear those few seconds of words come out of one person's mouth, it just felt really good. The next thing you want to hear is, I'll take a case of it. Actually, he did. It's funny because a lot of our overseas guests can't buy wine because they can't ship it or they'll buy a bottle or two and they'll just drink it while they're here and he did take wine with home with him that day so we were super excited about that. That's awesome. Yes, the shipping shipping overseas is just ridiculous. We just don't do it. Yeah, we can't do it. I don't know too many wineries who actually will do it. Exactly. So tell me about the Viognier. The basic gist of it is I do aim to, I love Condrieu and I really want to make a similar type of wine but based around the terroir of California. I don't want to mimic or take over or do the same. I want to do a big, bold Viognier from California using our you know, climate and soil and everything. And this is aged in oak barrels, just like country wines. Uh, this is for nine months and it's all one year used oak barrels. So it does have a little bit of this vanilla in it. But Viognier, you know, my wife convinced me to make this wine she kept talking to me about do a Viognier and I was just not, I was totally against it because I didn't think anyone would ever buy it. People love this wine, but basically uh, my mom said do a Chardonnay and my wife said do a Viognier. So 
in the end, I did a, I made a Viognier wine, and I, I'm sorry, Mom. I, I do love make his shard. I, you know, I think that Viognier is a little more on the map than a lot of people give it credit for. You know, it's definitely not as recognized and as popular as Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc. It's starting to come up. What really worried me is that people don't know how to pronounce it, so that kind of scares people away. But once they taste it, it's amazing. You know, this one has just tons of pineapple characteristics. Every year, this vineyard changes all the time. Uh, Because I do all native yeast, so this one, the winds come in different times from different areas, and so you get different characteristics every year. Sometimes it's pineapple, sometimes it's guava, sometimes it's pear or peach, apricot. apricot. We had the 2016 was the first year that Rob made it, so I think I was kind of starting to suggest to him in 2014 when we started working together. We were really focused on the Pinot, but I could see huge growth in Rob's future with the winery. I fell in love with his Pinot Noir. And I just kind of slowly started saying, hey, you know, why don't you make a white wine? If you're going to go out and share your wine with people and maybe start by doing some private tastings, why don't you add a a white varietal to your wine list? I had had a Viognier for the first time when I came to California in 2013. A friend had shared some with me and, and I was totally blown away. I love my wines to have aroma and body and really big flavor. And for a white wine, a Viognier totally ticks all those boxes. Viognier is is definitely one of the effusive white wines. The aromas kind of jump from the glass. This one's word. got yeah. this one's got beautiful peach and pineapple and vanilla. You know, a lot of people that only like reds love this type of wine. Yeah, it, it has that kind of heft. I mean, there are some of those people that insist on just oh, I drink red, I don't drink white. I always say those people just haven't found the right white wines yet. That's like a beer drinker saying I don't like. X or something. Right. They probably do. I get people at my winery and we only make Chardonnay. That's only our, that's our only white wine. And people come in the door and say, I don't like Chardonnay. I always say back to them, you've tried them all. (laughs) That's sort of in essence what I always say. Actually, I'm a little bit more aggressive about it. I will have guests sit down to a table. I'm going to generalize here. It's typically the men who say this. Mm -hmm. I start the pouring with our rosé. And... The guy, for example, will say, I don't do rosés. And I look at him and I smile because I'm a very smiley person and warm and loving. And I say, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and just try it this time. I can't let you not taste this wine because this could be the rosé that will open your eyes for the rest of your life to the possibility of what an unknown, an unfamiliar varietal can do for you. I love that. It's emotional and it's sensorial and we get a lot of people come in and say they don't like Chardonnay. You have to try them all when the opportunity They're not all They're not all butter bombs. They're not all, you know, butterscotchy tasting. That's a very popular style, but a lot of people, that's a line that's drawn for them. I don't like Chardonnay because of all those butter bombs that are out there in the world. My theory is with white wine, it's the door that opens wine to people. But then once they move into reds and start developing their palate for the reds, they don't look back at the whites. And then they get to that point where with the reds, they're they're buying the good reds, the expensive reds. Mm, the bougie reds. So they, they don't think about white at that point. And then somebody's on their way home. They've got people coming over and they realize that there's the one guy's girlfriend who only drinks white wine. <laughs> Oh, we got to get a bottle of white wine. So they stop wherever, whatever they're doing it, wherever they are, and they buy a bottle of white wine, and they're at the gas station, and it's a $6 bottle of Pinot Grigio. <laughs> and then they get it home, and they taste it, because, then, oh, I paid money for this wine. I should taste it. And it's like, Puh, 
I, oh yeah, I guess I don't like white wine. It just reinforces that idea. Right. Yeah, exactly. but it's a circular logic. You know, they're having bad wine right. because they're buying bad wine. You know, I want all my wines, all my wines, since they all have the Schurmeister name on it. They're all my babies, and they all take the same amount of care to make. And I want them all to be ageable too, to age for a long time and be a very serious wine that people would talk about and be like, what is that flavor? What is that flavor? And really enjoy. doesn't matter if it's white, rosé, red, whatever. People always ask me at the winery, they're always like, what's your favorite of your wines? And I'm like, what's your favorite child that you have? Right. I was just, that's, that's the exact same response. That I think they'd have head. an answer, actually. They would be able to answer that very easily. And half of them, <laughs> half of the people go, I don't have children. So, <laughs> and the other half go, oh, I get it. And then there's that few percentage that are like, Oh, we have favorites. We just can't tell you. <laughs> right. There and you I'm go. like, well, I might have favorites, but I just can't tell you. You either. know, you might try saying, I have a different favorite depending on the day. Yeah. Your palate changes. Some days you might be thinking, I need the Pinot. Or some days you're thinking, I need the Syrah. Every day is always different for yeah. me. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a whole bunch of wine of other people's wines because I'm a total wine geek and <laughs> we don't have all the wines at our house. So when I cook, I go down to the cellar and I go, man. I don't have a wine to go with this. I need a Greek wine to go with this. And <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> I have, you know, a hundred and some wines in the cellar and it's not enough to go with whatever dish I was going with. So it changes every day. And obviously the one, the wines that I like of my own change every day as well. All right. Let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit here. We talked about Laura's uh, upbringing, California to North Carolina, back to California. Rob, where did you come from, my friend? So I'm from a little town called Idaho Falls, Idaho. You know, I live near San Francisco now, and we have tons of San Francisco people come through. And I have never lived in a city bigger than 65,000 people. Uh, The town where I'm from, it's near the Tetons. It's all Mormon. So it's an almost dry town. There's two bars in a town of 60,000 people. You don't want to go to those bars because they're pretty rough. And so I never grew up with any food, wine, culture, period. And then I went to Italy and when I was 18, and of course I could drink. So I was like, right. yeah, let's drink some wine. And I just fell in love with the wine. I fell in love with the slow food wine culture where the families hang out for two and a half hours right. and drink and enjoy time. Because with our family, it was just you know much more hectic than that. You would never spend time hanging out with your family like that. And I get along with my family, but extended family would never do that. Then um, I came back to Idaho and I was going to school at University of Idaho for for biochemistry degree. Is that the one in Moscow? In Moscow, yeah. Okay, all right. And then I took, I'm a Washingtonian. Oh, so then- So I know oh, these things. Wow, I didn't even know that about you. And then I took classes at Washington State. At Wazoo. At Wazoo for wine. Yes. In was this before they, they, they installed the, the big new wine school there? Yes, it okay. was just at the start of them building that up. Because they're, they're, they're players now. Yeah, now it's a big deal, but it was just at the start. In fact, they didn't even have classes till my senior year. I just showed up. What was your major at that time? Uh, biochemistry, microbiology, and chemistry. Three majors. And so I um, had five electives, and so I went scrolling down the catalog, and there was like meteorology. And I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. Like, let's do that for electives. And then I'm like, you know what? Let's scroll down all the way and see what else is it. You only got into the M's. And I was only down to the M's and I was already excited about something. Keep scrolling. Keep scrolling. Keep scrolling. And I got down to winemaking and I'm like, wow, there we go. Sorry, meteorology. I want to do that. And that was cross course at Washington State. So I paid the same rate. I went into that class and oh my God, it was like the best class I ever had. I was just so excited about it. And we went on field trips 
As a biochemist, we did not go on field trips. You know, we went to the lab and we worked and we got very, very few credits and we just worked and worked. And, and here I'm going on field trips where we're talking to winemakers and drinking on the bus, going to these field trips. And I'm like, man, this sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> like, well, But I didn't really think about it that much because when you're 20 or tw- I was 22 at the time, you think you know everything and you think you know what you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Everyone in my family had been a professional working for someone else and they'd all been in the same degree of what they did. My dad was an engineer. His degree was an engineer. His brother was a mechanical engineer. His degree was a mechanic. And so I was like, well, you need a winemaking degree to do wine. Case closed. And I'm not going back to school. What, where did you think before you started the winemaking class that you were going to go off into as far as professionally? Uh, I had a couple ideas. I think I thought I was going to be a pharmacist like okay. my grandpa. And so we had five generations of pharmacy in our family. And I already had the the background, you know, right. the biochem. Then I started getting a few job offers and they were for like oil company in uh, Miles City, Montana, which I'm sorry, Miles City, but I don't want to live there. And Idaho in Blackfoot, Idaho, I got offered a job for Or Ida. I went down and visited and they took me to the fanciest restaurant in Blackfoot for the interview which was the Applebee's. Okay. And I was waiting. I'm getting a picture here of a town. Right, of a town, right? And so it was seven of us around the table. And I'm like, man, I hope that someone orders a martini or a margarita or something because I'm not going to order an alcoholic beverage unless someone else also orders a beverage. Sure, you have to observe the protocol. And not a single person ordered anything. So I was like, iced tea, please. And then I was like, man, I don't think I want to do this job. (laughs) And- I'm 22 and I'm single. Uh, sorry, there's, you know, I, I wanted to meet someone and I knew I was never going to meet anyone there. And then so I went to a job fair in Washington and Chateau St. Michel had a booth there. And I started talking to them about wine and they were like, oh, you should apply. And I said, I'm not really qualified to apply. They asked me my major and I was like, oh, biochemistry. And they're like, well, stop. Like, you should apply. You're definitely what we want. We're at this job fair for STEM people and please apply. And so I applied and the next day they offered me the job and uh, it was the lowest paying offer I had. But I was like, let's do it for a year. And I loved it. And I didn't like Eastern Washington that much because it was like Idaho. It was just like my hometown. Well, it is. It is. It right? is vast expanses of not very many people. Of, of not very many people. And, and it, it gets very hot deserty. in the summer. Hot. So hot in the summer. We'd wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning on those 100 degree days and we'd be out of the vineyard at 1130. And then so I got offered a job down here at Paul Meyer, which was a job I couldn't turn down. I was like, man, I love their wine. Really amazing wine. Really amazing wines. And Aaron Green, very well-known winemaker. And I was already starting to get catch the bug where I was like, I want to learn from the best of the best. How long were you in find. Washington working for Chateau Saint-Michel? About a year. Yeah. And I, I lucked out. I got to manage like a thousand acres, co-manage like a thousand acres of grapes. What town are you in? I worked out of Prosser, but I worked in Walla Walla to Yakima was my territory. Yeah, that's Washington wine okay. country. And it was all their wines that aren't under Chateau St. Michel label. It was all their wines that are under their higher labels. Colslari, the North Star, the fancier wines, the Eroica wines. And so I got to meet some very well-known winemakers, see some very cool vineyards. So it was, a, I mean, it was an amazing experience for sure. And I got to learn about you know, being out in the vineyard and everything. And I got a good tan being out there for sure. A farmer's tan. You wouldn't believe it looking at him now. All right. So you came down to work for Paul Meyer. How long did you work for Paul Meyer? Uh, I just did one harvest with them. Okay. So by then I was already kind of 
quote. And, and now well, you're building, you've got a resume. I got too. a resume, yeah. And I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. My parents and you were, were in the right place working with the right people. Yeah, and I was in the right place working with the right, right people. My parents weren't super excited about it because they were like, man, you, you're not making any money. You know, I met some New Zealand people and they're like, you should work in New Zealand. So I ended up getting a job down in New Zealand and going down there. Actually, right before the New Zealand, I got, my friend was like, from Nepal was like, hey, go down to Nepal with me. So in the wine industry, when you're just starting out, you know, I'm working four months and four months, right. four months in New Zealand, four months here, sure, five months. So I have like two, three months. That leaves four months of the year. Of the year, right? And I didn't spend a dime when I was working because I was working like 75, 80 hour weeks. So I didn't ever have any time to do anything. And the only thing that I spent money on was wine, you know, fancy wines, since mm-hmm. I was working for fancy places. So I went down to Nepal, and I went to New Zealand from there. Wait, what happened in Nepal? Was that a wine thing? No, it was not a wine thing at okay. all. It was a friend's marriage. <laughs> oh, okay. But I definitely uh, uh, learned about how to make, like, Roxy and their other local liquors down there. Okay. Turns out, when you go to other countries and you tell people they're a winemaker, always something to talk about to you then. So, always. always. You've got to taste this stuff that we make. They're like, oh, here, try this, try this, try this. Sure. You know, I don't speak their language. They don't speak, but but they know alcohol. They know the word. It's an international language, getting drunk. It builds relationships. Yes. So you came back from Nepal, still in California. And then I went down to New Zealand, came back here, got offered a job as Marco Bear's assistant winemaker. Okay. That's, I, another, that's another Big name within the wine community, not not hugely well known because of the size of production. I think, but, but his wines sell out yeah. three years in advance. Yeah, those so, wines get the big scores. Yeah, get the People big buy scores. The futures very expensive, and he also was the consultant for Bryant Family and Futo. So I worked with him for those ones, which are big cab, big expensive cab places. And so I got to work with these great vineyards. I, I would say I, I did about fifty percent vineyard work, fifty percent wine work. And uh, he gave me a, a fairly high degree of autonomy to do a lot of the stuff I wanted to do or, I mean, share my ideas with him. And sure. It was, a lot, it was a lot of fun working with him for sure. That's when I really started to get this idea of doing my own wine. So who gave you that first opportunity to make wine that was going to have your name on it? Oh, so that was so that was at Aubert. Okay. In 2008, I made some wine from some of his wine on the side. And I didn't um, label it. I just bottled it as Shiner's. Okay. I gave that wine to my neighbors, and we called it Galway Table Wine, my, my parents' neighbors. And, oh, my God, they loved that wine. I mean, that wine was really good. Was it a Chardonnay? Was it a Pinot? Was it a Cab? What was it? It was a Chardonnay, and it was 50% Hyde Vineyard, 50% Ritchie Vineyard. That's some good fruit. And then where did the name Galway come from? That, that's the neighborhood circle that I grew up on. Oh. And my parents... Right when I started getting into wine industry, I got them into the wine. This is still back in Idaho. It's back in Idaho. Okay. I got them into the wine, and then they got their neighbors into the wine. And soon, everyone in the neighborhood was going to the front of someone's yard. We had a table there, and everyone would gather at that table. Even if no one was at that table at the time, uh-huh. you just show up with wine, and then the other neighbors would show up with wine. Just lighten the town up. Yeah. That's great history. I like that. Laura, we'll let you talk for a minute. I know oh, you're, well, thank you. I know I'm you're dying. dying. <laughs> You're dying to get back to it. <laughs> you talked about getting into wine back in North Carolina in your 20s, yes? Yes. What was the wine that turned you? I was at a wine bar with my best friend in Charlotte. It was called Wine Y 
and like the chemicals, you know, the periodical tables, capital Y with a little N That's clever. up in the upper right corner. I don't know how to describe it. Anyway, it was the wine bar. You get the picture. Yes, yeah, so you get the picture. So it was at the wine bar cafe in Charlotte. My friend and I just went in to go have a glass of wine. That was it. And I opened up their wines by the glass list. I was just kind of browsing and I saw the word Priorat Spain and I liked the way Priorat sounded. Um, my experience with Spanish wines was purely like Tempranillo from Target, from like the wine shelf sure. at Target. Sure. Even to this day, and especially back then, Spain was the home of some of the most inexpensive, really good wine. Yes. And back in the East Coast, a lot of lot more Spanish wine. They're not drinking as much California wine back there. Yeah. Unfortunately. Oh, that's all they right. Have, they've got some good stuff. So you had the Priorat. So the and Priorat. You were off, the, off the hook for that. It was a 2004 Cellar Calpla, spelled C-E-L-L-E-R. Mm-hmm. And then Cal, C-A-L, and Pla, P-L-A, from the Priorat region of Spain. I didn't know anything about varietals, but mm-hmm. it's actually a um, Carignan Grenache blend. Mm-hmm. I just remember smelling the wine because I was getting to a point in my life where I think I was 27 and I was really taking time to smell. And at that moment, I had never smelled anything like that in my life. And Priorat wines are known for being notoriously difficult to describe. So what people say is that the wine smells like wet rock. If you have a rock nearby, maybe go outside, grab a hit pause, go outside. If you have a creek nearby, even better, grab a rock, get it nice and wet, and keep it cool and smell it. And that's what this wine smelled like. And, and a little bit of fruit. I love that. It was so enlightening for me. And it got me excited. And I enjoyed the rest of my glass. And the next day, I went to my local wine shop. As a 27-year-old, I felt very, very grown up. So I went into the wine shop. And I asked if they had this wine. I didn't know anything about imports and everything. Sure. And... I used my very hard-earned, soul-selling marketing design money to buy my very first case of wine. And that was my first case of wine I ever bought. They had the same wine at the wine shop? They had it shipped in. Oh, he ordered it. The you guy, special ordered at I a wine shop. This is, what you, this is what you're supposed to this do. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what do. adults do. And I walked out the door. <laughs> I remember, like, you know, I went to go pick up my wine. It came in. And I just remember, and it was $18 a bottle. Which was astronomical for me at the time. Sure. I'm very spoiled now, thanks to my husband. And I don't take any of it for granted, and none of us should. I got my wine, went and picked it up. And I remember handing him my credit card. And at the same time, I was like handing it over in slow motion. I'm thinking, what am I doing? Like, I can't spend this much money on 12 bottles of wine. I could buy a lot of groceries. I could buy a lot, I could buy a lot of really cheap bad wine for this amount of This money. would fill up my gas tank numerous times. It would. This is definitely like a sushi dinner for four type of <laughs> type of thing. And man, I love sushi. But anyway, um, yeah, I took it home and I enjoyed every single bottle. I will never, ever, ever forget the smell the first time I smelled that. That's wine. such a great story. Thank you for sharing. Let's do a little swirling right Let's now. We have the Schurmeister Pinot now. 2018. Yeah, this is a Rogers Creek Pinot Noir from Petaluma Gap. So Sonoma okay. Coast, Petaluma Gap, to be more specific. It's got really rich fruit on the nose. 
Uh, this vineyard always gives a super rich characteristic because you have this beautiful volcanic ash soil up there. And it's 2,000 feet elevation, so it ends up being picked quite a bit later, so you get this really rich characteristic to it. So this and is technically like mountain fruit. Tec- yeah, if you want to – I'm from Idaho, so none of these are mountains to me, but uh, they're definitely <laughs> mountains to some You call that a mountain? So this always gives this rich fruit along with some earthy characteristics because it literally is like moon dust. I call it moon dust soil because you jump out of your car and step on it, and it leaves this – like the footprint, like the – the moon photos. Like one small step for a man. Yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. Those type. And then the wind comes in and blows it away. Right. Oh, away. it's so fine. That is so awesome. Fine. That. Are we talking about can dog we, farts? Can we pause a second? <laughs> yeah, Eli farted. Eli, right the winery as dog is here. The Pinot. Our, I promise you, our Pinot doesn't hey, smell like farts. <laughs> hey, buddy. Yeah. It smells really bad. You got some good aromatics going. Yeah, there. Eli, you're just adding to those characteristics. Yep. <laughs> I was taking a wine marketing class at Napa Valley College, and we had just adopted Eli, and I didn't want to leave him in the car by himself. The teacher, Paul Wagner, actually, if you know him, he's amazing, and he does a, a wine podcast too. Paul allowed me to leave Eli in the class at my feet, and as soon as we all got started and he started teaching, Eli just proceeded to pass gas through the entire class. He let it rip rip the whole time. I apologize. I apologize for that. Did we finish our talk about the Pinot? This vintage, this 2018 Rogers Creek, very much reminds me of that original bottle that Rob gave me. Oh, the seduction bottle. The seduction wine. And something that I really would love for people to know about Pinot Noir. So for me, my experience with Pinot had been mid-level on the shelf at the grocery store Pinots, mm-hmm. um, probably 15 to $20 a bottle on average. Pinot for me had always been a little bit meh, um, a little bit kind of dusty, musty, watery, just not super fruit forward or rich or anything like that. And so when I tried Rob's wine for the first time, when he gave me his first bottle, it was earthy and aromatic which is crazy for a pinot and it just had this richness and depth and smoothness to it and that is what this 2018 is for me you're still getting fruit but this wine completely transformed the way i perceived a varietal and when i tasted that 12 i knew that i wanted to help you tell this story for the rest of our lives i love this wine so much and you can smell it (laughs) <laughs> through the mask if you're pouring it into a decanter and like when we're working we're, we'll pour this wine when we have our masks on and i can smell it through the fabric and that to me is pretty incredible that wine's doing its job it how many cases do you guys produce right now it's 700 but last year we only did 600 because of the fires we only made four wines okay we're really lucky we were able to dodge and pivot during the fires a lot because we're very small and i can make picking decisions, you know, within 12 hours, whereas other winemakers that I know if something got smoke damaged and they needed to find something else, it's like a month long process because they have to reach out to their boss and then their boss has to reach out to their boss and then it has to come down the chain. By then the fruit's all picked. So I was able to uh, bounce around and pivot on my feet really fast to uh, get some fruit that was not smoke damaged. So yeah, you, I, was, I was just going to say, you're talking about the 2020 vintage and there were fires yeah. very close to where we are right now. And a lot of the vineyards- Two miles were, away from this tasting room. And a lot of the vineyards went unpicked because the grapes were tested and they came back positive for smoke taint. Oh yeah. So you found the fruit that you could find and I, you made 
A little less wine. A little less wine. Four wines. A Pinot, a Chardonnay, a Viognier, and the Syrah. But I did not do three of the wines that I was planning on, which was a Cab, another Pinot, and the Rosé. At least I was able to get some of it. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. But yeah, we're tiny. We just do a little tiny bit of production because it's just my wife and I. So, you know, I don't plan on growing to be huge. Everyone asks us if we dream of owning our own vineyards one day. So Laura and I have differing opinions on this. I'm actually really happy with where we are now. And I kind of had this idea that the natural progression would be to get up to maybe 5,000 cases. We're doing 700 now, and we meet almost every single person who tries our wines, which is incredible to say. But the dream is five acres in the Petaluma Gap, maybe a couple acres of one variety. Rob and I used to live in a sweet little cabin on Mount Veter. We were there for a couple years right in the beginning of our relationship, and we were super lucky to have it. And it had a little wood stove. And, you know, whenever one of us would come home at the end of the day, if someone was already home, you could kind of see the glow through the windows. You had to go up 70 steps, and you'd see the little puffs of smoke kind of coming out of the chimney. And you would just walk in and open the door and the heat was just this special, wonderful kind of wood stove warmth. And honestly, like, that's all I want. There's I want just so that. much romance with you two. It, it, so well, much imagery. I embellish a little more than a lot of people. I just am very into sensory experiences. All right. So you want to have the vineyard, the small vineyard. <laughs> so, Rob, do you want to have a vineyard? Uh, yeah, I would like to have probably two acres, but then it would be about where it would be. But, you know, my dream, very similar to Laura's, except you know, 5,000 cases is like... Oh, I don't want 5,000 so cases. So, maybe eventually. Maybe it's an interesting issue with the amount of cases. As a winemaker, I want to make everything. And so, I have to control myself to be like, you know what? I can't physically make that much wine. Like, I can't actually watch and baby all of those babies all the time. But yeah, I want to make a Riesling. I want to make a conversion. I want to make all the wines. So, I do want to make... Lots and lots of wine, but I also recognize that I want to focus on having the best quality of that wine, which means I have to spend a certain amount of time on those wines, which means I can't make so many cases because eventually, you know, I'm no longer wine making, I'm wine directing. Sure. You know, my goal is to be where I'm in a perfect situation where I'm still wine making, still doing the punch downs. As long as I'm physically able to, still focused fully on quality. And maybe when I'm 80 or something, I can be like, get an intern to go out and pick the grapes or something. And <laughs> let's mark that gonna, on the, he's still going to be out there. Let's mark that yeah. on the calendar so when Rob's 80, which is a long time so from I now. Micromanaging. I have a little cane and I like smack them, you know, when they're not doing. <laughs> hey, uh, Sonny, what are you doing with that? Hey. Leave that when canopy was, alone. What are you doing? When I was your age. I picked twice as fast as you. Did I ever tell you how I met my wife? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be long dead by then, I'm sure. <laughs> I Can I change my dream? So a thousand cases, no matter where we are in our life, I just want to drink your wine for the rest of my life, literally. You guys are too cute. I also just want to say one more thing. One more this thing. This probably won't be the last thing, but Rob and I make a living telling our story to people. Our sharing moments are extremely genuine. Once in a blue moon, I will learn something about Rob that I didn't know before. And that meteorologist elective story, I had no idea 
that you were even considering that. And I'm so glad that you didn't pick that. You could have been a TV weatherman. You could have been a TV weather. That would be, I'd watch you. I have the hair for TV weather. You'd have amazing <laughs> hair. And a great smile. I have one more thing on my list. It has been revealed. Laura loves podcasts. Mm. I think you told me that yourself. <laughs> yes. Uh, that podcast you recommended, Dirtbag Diaries. Favorite. It was so interesting because I listened and these guys are going on and on and on about hiking and climbing in Alaska. And it was so weird. At no point in the podcast did they drink wine. I thought, don't they drink wine on all podcasts? I guess maybe just on my podcast. Apparently, uh, this is why I don't listen to these podcasts because there's no wine drinking involved, is it's not healthy. (laughs) It doesn't go with climbing a mountain. I mean, I don't understand because when I went to Switzerland, what you hike to each individual hut and each individual hut has beer and wine and cheese for you. And that's the whole point to get to the next hut. So I don't understand. So mountain climbing and wine drinking, that should yeah. be the next podcast. Yeah, Rob, for sure. When I go hiking and backpacking, I always bring wine. So when we go backpacking, we bring a bottle. And if we're in a snowpack area, you stick a bottle of white wine in the snow and that's how you <laughs> let it chill. And then you pop it open. We don't really waste much time with cups or glasses. You just drink it straight from the bottle. And um, I would be down for a wine and uh, climbing podcast if you do one. Maybe we'll work on that. I will I will listen to one if you do one. After six miles or eight miles of hiking with a backpack, as soon as that wine touches your lips, your shoulders just instantly just <laughs> relax. And you just feel good. How could you not want... And the sun starts to set. Yes. And if you're in the Tahoe, we, we do the Desolation Wilderness area a lot. It, it can't be beautiful. I mean, those are moments to live for, for sure. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm going to read the closing credits now. The Tall Mike Wine Podcast was conceived, is written, edited, and produced by yours truly. For feedback, questions, comments, to request coasters, email me, tallmikewine at gmail.com. This offer is limited. Take a look behind the scenes on the Tall Mike Wine Instagram feed. Subscribing to the podcast would be a very nice gesture. Laura, are you going to subscribe? I already have. You just have to start listening to it. <laughs> They're piling up. I promise They're I piling will. piling up. Luckily, is- we're super busy, which makes it hard to enjoy podcasts. But yes, I promise. Okay, because this is episode eight. Eight is actually my lucky number. Oh, I might have to come back and we'll do another episode because you guys said you have too much. When you said episode number eight, I secretly had like fireworks inside. It would have to be <laughs> it would have to be episode like eighteen then. And then twenty eight. Maybe so. on all the eights you guys can come back. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'll probably be back in the Vintner's room next time, regardless of where I am. I am Tall Mike Wine. Cheers. Cheers.